Meet Reed Lance Rosenthal, rancher, number one best-selling award-winning author, and unabashedly, unapologetically, on the right side of the outstanding issues of our generation. But don't try to fence him in. Sometimes his positions will surprise you, because Reed is definitely his own man, with his own opinions. You might love him, you might hate him, but you won't be able to stop listening. Step over to the right side with Reed. Howdy, folks. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio, talking to you all from Canada to the Gulf and the Atlantic to the Pacific and around the globe. Thanks for tuning in. So, today, we're going to cover the history of gun control and then the rest of the story. And we may even lap that over to next week because this is a big subject. It's a big red line in the sand. Yes, it is. And then we're going to talk about inflation. I'm going to give you kind of a macro view of what inflation is, why it's occurring, and there's lots of stress factors, including some intentional stress factors, by those folks who love you, the government, you know? Your interest is foremost in their mind. Rest easy, folks. They have you in their hand. And then we're going to talk about, as part of that, what that's doing to the dollar. And how this plays into the designs of globalists, China, Russia, Iran, and yes, the United Nations, who also happens to be, as you'll see in the rest of the story, involved in the gun control melee. And we're going to talk about part six of our getting organized, getting off the couch and changing the dynamics and the course of this country. We're going to focus on what you can do when you're down at that election. This coming November, six months away, folks, what you can do to detect, deter, and stop election fraud. Because that is the only way they're going to win this election. And then we're going to have the rat-a-tat-tat. Oh, yes. And there's one rat-a-tat-tat particularly related to COVID deaths that I think you will find absolutely ghastly. How's that? So, let's get going. We're going to start off with our quotes And our quote from long ago, but prescient today, is, first of all, let me remind you of the quote from last week, because it really plays into this show. The greatest tyrannies are always perpetuated in the name of the noblest causes. Oh, yes. And then, here's the quote for today, and this is Thomas Paine. A body of men holding themselves accountable to nobody ought not to be trusted by anybody. You know, I was... uh, We're trying to get water going early on the ranch this year. It's going to be a very dry year. It already is. And there's no relief in sight. And the water that's by you is water that's gone. So we've been storing in the ponds. We've been opening ditches. The neighbors are doing the same. Everybody's working together. One of the great things about rural and remote communities And I was watching today as the water kind of trickled out of the sets. Those are the little breaks and ditches that allow water to flood out over the ground to grow your hay, in our case, or crops of any type, depending upon where you may be located. And that water was irresistible. It sparkled and it shimmered in the sun and the wind, shimmers of sunlight kind of playing across its surface. And its course was inexorable. It worked its way down the hill down the slope, following the path of least resistance. Every blade of grass would deflect it just so. Every little mound, every little tuft of growth would deflect it another way. But 
Its course was always downhill, no matter which little zig or zag it took to the left or right. And it reminded me, kind of, of this country right now. Its course is downhill, but unlike water, at least in my opinion, it can be corrected, but it's up to us. And it starts with the Bill of Rights. And the Bill of Rights is those Ten Amendments which safeguard your freedoms. Those freedoms that government is supposed to protect. I mean, supposedly that is the role of government. And of those Ten Amendments, the Second Amendment, which is the right to keep and bear arms, may be, in its own way, the most important because it is the one that protects the other nine. So, gun control. The United States is obviously the most heavily armed country in the world. Roughly, and they think these numbers may be low because many folks have firearms. They won't declare them. They won't answer a poll. Many firearms kind of predate the NICS system, which we'll be talking about here in just a little bit. But of the guns that they know of, there's about 120.5 weapons per 100 people in the United States, roughly 400 million weapons. That's the highest total, highest per capita number in the world. The Americans that they know of that own weapons are roughly 25% give or take of the population. And many of them own more than one weapon. By the way, that's broken down into, once again, what they know of. 35% of men and 12% of women. Hey, gals, let's, let's get going. You know, you too can be Annie Oakley. And it might be a good time to take up arms and learn how to use them. And that really goes for everybody. Look, proponents of gun control laws, basically they say the Second Amendment, and we're going to talk about its exact language here in just a little bit, was intended for malicious. Gun violence would be reduced. People would be safe, you know, that word that they love to use. Gun restrictions have always existed. And a majority of Americans, including gun owners, support new gun restrictions. Well, I don't know where they get those stats, but that's okay. And then there's those who are against gun control laws. And they argue, obviously, just the opposite. An individual's right to own guns, they maintain. Guns are needed for self-defense. And those threats range from local criminals, foreign invaders, and yes, the government itself. And they point to the Federalist Papers, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, and the discussions that the founders had when they were enshrining those ten bulwarks of freedom. Gun control laws, though, are just about as old as the Second Amendment, which was ratified, by the way, in 1791. Some examples of gun control throughout colonial America, this is pre-Constitution, 1787, included criminalizing the transfer of guns to Catholics, believe it or not, Irish, slaves, indentured servants, Native Americans, and they also regulated the storage of gunpowder in homes. They banned loaded guns in Boston houses, for example. They mandated participation in formal gatherings of troops. And they mandated that you, when they knocked on your door, you know, it's the revenuers, we're here to check you out. When they knocked on your door, you had to declare if you had a weapon, if they asked. There were a number of colonies, however, that went to the other extreme. Basically, they mandated that everyone in the household, including women, owned guns, and that all able-bodied men enrolled in the militia and were trained in the proficient use of firearms. There was a 1743 South Carolina law, just as one example, 
and it stated to safeguard against insurrections and other wicked attempts of Negroes and other slaves, unquote. <laughs> you know, some of what you're going to hear in this show, you're not going to like much, but history is history. It's good, it's bad, it's ugly, but it is the touchstone of the past, and that is the guidepost to the future. The Founding Fathers pretty much thought that the individual right to bear arms and the service in a militia that was bearing arms were intertwined. They were inseparable. In fact, the individual right was mandatory to fulfill the collective right of serving in a militia. But after the ratification of the Constitution, there were still all sorts of gun control laws, hither, yither, yon in the states. Let me give you one little example. So there was a Georgia law, 1833, and it stated that, quote, it shall not be lawful for any free person of color in the state to own, use, or carry firearms of any description whatever, that the free person of color, so detected in owning, using, or carrying firearms, shall receive upon his bare back 39 lashes, and that the firearms so found in the possession of said free person of color shall be exposed for public sale, unquote. And you know, even in the Wild West, there were restrictions. Deadwood, believe it or not, in the Dakota Territories. Dodge City in Kansas, I mean, known as, you know, wide open town. Rudum, tootum, holler, shoot in the air. I mean, you've seen the Westerns, right? But both of those had gun restrictions. In one case, the mayor had to approve any firearm coming into town. And in another, there were signs everywhere, Kansas City, carrying of firearms are strictly prohibited. Gun control really got its start, though, on a national level, with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, February 14, 1929. You know, Bugs Moran and Al Capone and the machine guns and the rat-a-tat-tat and the holes in the cars and the whole nine yards. You've seen the gangster movies. In 1934, the National Firearms Act, the NFA, was passed. A $200 tax and a registration requirement on the making and transfer of certain guns that included shotguns and rifles with short barrels under 18 inches, firearm mufflers and silencers, and specific firearms, including machine guns, labeled as, quote, any other weapons. But the insidious attack on our rights to bear arms, which the founders instilled in the Second Amendment, has been ongoing since inception, mostly by folks who, shall we say, gravitate toward big government and a lot less toward individual rights. Let me give you some examples, just highlights. So, in 1791, the Bill of Rights was passed. Quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, unquote. In 1837, Georgia passed a law banning handguns. The law was ruled unconstitutional by the state Supreme Court. In 1865, that's when a number of southern states adopted the Black Codes, forbidding black people and others, Catholics, you know, Irish, from owning or possessing firearms. In 1871, the NRA was organized. In the beginning, its primary goal was improving American civilians' marksmanship in preparation for war. In 1927, the U.S. Congress passes the Miller Act, which bans the mailing of concealed weapons or weapons that could be concealed. In 1934, and this is really the big one that kind of starts that, you know, downhill flow of the water I was talking about, the National Firearms Act of 1934, the NFA, it regulated the manufacture, the sale, the possession, 
of all sorts of things. And it was the fulcrum that anti-gun forces have used at one little step at a time. You know, that one little trickle of water going this way and that, but always downhill, to further impede your rights. In 1938, the Federal Firearms Act, first limitations in the history of the country on selling ordinary firearms. People had to obtain an FFL, the Federal Firearms License. That's what all your gun dealers have now. At that time, it only cost $1. <laughs> 1968, the next really big one, the Gun Control Act of 1968, it regulated imported guns. It expanded the gun dealer licensing and record-keeping requirements, which is now coming into play, as I'm going to explain. It placed specific limitations on the sale of handguns and it banned felons from owning guns. In 1972, the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the ATF, is created. In 1976, the District of Columbia enacts an anti-handgun law. It also required the registration of all rifles and shotguns within D.C. That comes into play 30 years later. We'll be getting there in just a moment. 1986, the Armed Career Criminal Act. It increases the penalties for possession of firearms by persons who aren't qualified to own them. In 1988, Ronald Reagan signs the Undetectable Firearms Act of 88. It's illegal to manufacture, import, sell, ship, deliver, possess, transfer, or receive any firearm that is not detectable by walk-through metal detectors. In 1990, the Crime Control Act bans the manufacturing and importing of semi-automatic assault weapons, quote-unquote assault weapons. Let's call them semi-automatic weapons. And it establishes gun-free school zones. Oh, that's worked out really great, hasn't it? 1994, the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act. You notice how they name all these, you know, to keep you safe. It's that, guys, yes, the greatest tyranny is perpetuated by the noblest of causes, so to speak. The Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act was also passed in 1994. That also prohibited the sale and manufacture possession of different types of what they term assault weapons for a 10-year period. That was championed by Senator Feinstein. By the way, that law went away when it was failed. Its ratification failed in the Senate September of 2004. In 1998, New Orleans filed suit against gun makers and firearms trade associations. They want to they want to get the recovery of costs that are attributed to gun-related violence. November 12th of 1998, several weeks later, Chicago files a $433 million suit, a lot of money back then, against local gun dealers and makers, saying that it's their fault there were so many guns in Chicago. November 17th, 1998, five days later, you think these guys had this planned? You think there was a little lockstep going on here? The left is always in lockstep. There's a negligence suit filed against Beretta by the family of a 14-year-old boy who was unfortunately killed by another boy with a Beretta handgun. All those cases go away. They were either dismissed or the plaintiffs lost. On November 30th, 1998, permanent provisions of the Brady Act go into effect. This is when gun dealers were then starting to be required to initiate a pre-sale criminal background. And it's when the ATF, folks began keeping records through the National Institute, uh, sorry, National Instant Criminal Background Check, the NICS, N-I-C-S, computer system, which is 
more than in play today, as you're going to find out. In January, or actually October of 2005, Bush signs the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, protecting gun makers from lawsuits against the use of weapons in crimes. That was undermined a little bit. I brought you this story by Remington's settlement, although they didn't admit any, admit any liability, of $30 million in the Sandy Hook shooting just a year ago. In January of 2008, the NICS system is kind of up the notch, and they start looking for mental health. In June of 2008, landmark decision, Supreme Court, and next week we're going to talk more about these court-related gun control decisions. District of Columbia versus Heller. Famous, famous deal. This overturned that 32-year-old ban by D.C. on handguns and its requirement that long guns be registered. But the left wasn't done. In 2015, they tried to close what they call the gun show loophole. In 2016... Obama enacts a whole bunch of executive orders, remember? I have my pen and I have my phone. And this was all centered around uh, Omar Mateen, an admitted ISIS lover, killing 49 people in that Orlando, Florida gay nightclub. A year later, Stephen Craig Paddock kills 59 people, wounds more than 500 others down in Las Vegas. Do you remember that whole incredible mess which... There was a lot more than meets the eye there, folks, but that is yet another tale for another day. October 5th, 2017, Feinstein, never to be denied, comes back with another quote-unquote assault weapons ban, but it doesn't go anywhere. 2018, July 31st, Robert Lasnik in Seattle. He issues a TRO blocking the release of blueprints that could be used to produce quote-unquote untraceable and undetectable 3D printable plastic guns. And by the way, that is the those ghost guns, so to speak, are the subject of Biden's week ago, just one week ago, presidential executive order. August 2019, three mass shootings, Gilroy, California, El Paso, Texas, Dayton, Ohio. And all of a sudden, you know, we needed the red flag laws which allows police or family members to file a court petition without notice, without due process, to remove firearms from individuals who, quote, might, unquote, pose a danger to themselves or others. January 20th, 2020. This is the day they got in office. The first thing the House did was do H.R. 1, you know, the Voting Rights Act. Oh, we know where that's going. The second thing, or just about the second thing they did was Hank Johnson, Georgia Democrat, and he introduced the Gun Violence Prevention and Community Safety Act. See, it's a noble cause, folks. It's for your rights. It's for your safety. And it's going to save lives and make our country safer. I'm quoting from him. But basically, it eliminated a number of weapons, large capacity magazines, and a whole bunch of other weapon-related restrictions. It hasn't gone anywhere yet. Now, the rest of the story here is that you'll never believe who is involved behind the scenes in all these gun control annex. Oh, yes, you have the groups out there. You have the, Bra the Brady group and you have, uh, you know, the moms group, etc. You've heard the names. But did you know that Congress, when it was Democratic, in 1993, they funded 
a study to be done by the CDC. You remember the CDC? Can you think about the CDC over the last two years? <laughs> and the, the study was done by a guy by the name of Arthur Kellerman, and it was actually published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Quote, gun ownership as a risk factor in the home, unquote. In other words, did you know owning a gun is detrimental to your health, folks? Just like wearing a mask is beneficial to your health, you know? Yeah, well, you know, give me my gun and take away my mask. The NRA, by the way, scored a big victory a few years later. Congress passed the Dickey Amendment. It actually took the $2.6 billion, that's how much they were funded, I'm not making this up, that Congress had funded the CDC to come up with how guns were detrimental to your health, and it eliminated it. But there's still more to the rest of the story. Do you know who's all hot to trot on American gun control laws and who's very upset that Trump pulled us out of the United Nations Small Arms Treaty, which Biden is trying to put us back into? I mean, basically, the Small Arms Treaty would allow the global government of the world to know exactly what guns you own, how much ammunition you have, etc., etc., etc. It goes like the water, downhill from there. But the Chinese government, now, why would they be concerned that Americans have guns? Aren't, isn't there an ocean? I mean, do bullets really fly across, like, the Pacific Ocean? Could American gun owners shooting in the air somehow harm a Chinese citizen? No. There's a video, by the way, right under the audio bar this week, www.ontherightsideradio.com. You should watch it. This is a Chinese CCP spokesman speaking directly to why the United States needs to get into that United Nations Small Arms Treaty. Oh, yes. And like the government, the Red Chinese have our interests foremost in their mind, folks. More on all this next week. But now you know the rest of the story when it comes to gun control. Let's talk about inflation. What it means, what it is, and how our enemies are going to use it to undermine the dollar and try and change the dollar from the reserve currency of the world to one of their own. Remember, all wars are economic in the end, folks. All wars are economic in the end. Inflation is not the increase in the value or the cost of goods and services. It is the decrease in the value of the purchasing agent, in this case, the United States dollar. The more dollars there are, the less each is worth. When you run your printing press and you print trillions of dollars to buy your own bonds, you have lots of dollars, the money supply, floating around. Each one is worth less. But there's other factors which have been contributing to inflation. And basically, you have wages going up. Wages are going up because of inflationary pressures. Workers need more money to take care of the basic necessities of life. There's supply chain problems, which we know could be solved overnight, but they're not. Gee, maybe they're not too worried about inflation. Maybe they want inflation. We're going to talk about that in depth next week. There's too few goods. In other words, supply is low, but demand is high or increasing. That creates upward pressure on prices. But perhaps most important, most important, is people's mental perception of inflation. If you think there's going to be inflation, you're more likely to take certain actions 
or not take certain actions than if you don't think there's going to be inflation. You may be motivated to rush out and buy something because you think it's going to go up or it's going to go away or there's not going to be any more of it or you won't be able to get it. You know, one of the things about inflation is that inflation benefits debtors. It does not benefit lenders. Think about this. If somebody loans you $10 and there's an inflation rate of 10%, we'll just use round numbers here, the value of that debt to the lender is going down 10% a year. If they're charging you, let's say, 5% interest, well, you're paying one half the inflation rate. You're actually making 5% on the leverage that the debt has given you to purchase whatever, a house or truck or whatever it happens to be. And that drives inflation. It drives spending, more dollars chasing fewer goods. One of the things about inflation is that it undermines the currency. It doesn't matter whether you are Argentina, which has had hyperinflation and basically had to revalue its currency three times in the last 50 years. It doesn't matter if it's Venezuela. It doesn't matter if it's Zimbabwe. Everything is the same. Economics are economics. Two plus two is four. To go back to my ranch story, water runs downhill. To go back to my firearm story of this show, the process is inexorable unless you end it. And this government is taking no steps to end it, much to the delight of our enemies. Because as our dollar is weakened by inflation, not only does that cause all sorts of social, mental, emotional, health, and financial stress on the American people, which are enemies, let's face it, folks, they revel in it. Anything that makes America weaker is good because it makes them stronger. You know, it's not a zero-sum game. And you would think that maybe the government is kind of reveling in it, too, because it weakens America to put us in the position of just being another seat at the table, as Barack Obama liked to say. And inflation works first on commodities, you know, food and energy and oil. And those countries, let's say Russia, that depend on commodities for kind of the lifeblood of their economy, they love inflation, folks. They love it. Last week I told you, Russia is making a third more this year than they made last year on oil. I mean, let the inflation run. Putin's doing like an inflation dance there at the Kremlin, you know? Like the old rain dance. Let it inflate, let it inflate, let it rain, let it rain, let it rain. The price of natural gas is just one, for instance, is up 100, that's 100 percent over the past year. Gee, they don't include that in their little inflation scenario they give you every month from the government, do they? They do at realstatistics.com. The link is in the upper right of the website on the right side radio.com. And one of the things that inflation does, besides weakening the currency, is it gives those countries, particularly our adversaries, who have invested heavily in gold reserves, like China, like Russia. It gives them the ability to use gold or to use their currency backed by gold to replace the dollar in their overseas trading, particularly for energy. Saudi Arabia just announced that it will do deals with China in yuan. That is the Chinese currency. That means 
Yes, they'll still do deals in dollars, but the movement away from the dollar as the petrocurrency, which is really what gives its reserve footing as a reserve currency of the world, is underway. Driving Russia into China's arms and Russia selling oil to China for rubles or for gold or for yuan, again, gets the dollar out of the petro economy, further weakening the dollar. And let me tell you that if the dollar loses its reserve currency of the world status, you will see your quality of life. You will see the economic might of this country decline overnight by at least 25%, and I could be optimistic on that number. And our adversaries would like nothing better. Remember, all wars are economic. And with a devalued dollar, the United States, who is not doing a great job of that anyway, if you listen to last week's show, will not be able to fund its military. It's kind of like killing two birds with one stone without firing a shot. And what's really concerning is that our government, you know, the government of the people, by the people, for the people, our government is doing everything it would seem to hasten the dollar's demise. So, what do all countries, friends or enemies of one another, need? What do all people need? Not want, but need. They need commodities, the basic goods and materials that you need to function and thrive and live. Wheat, copper, oil, livestock, fuel, and of course coffee. Well, I'm kind of interjecting the coffee because, you know, you got to crank it up, particularly with heavy cream. But in all seriousness, commodities are the foreshadows of future inflation. I gave you the example of natural gas being up 100% over the last year. And there's patterns, super cycles in commodities. And we happen to be, unfortunately, coinciding in a super cycle with all the other things we've talked about today. Commodities were up 30% just since January 1 of this year, folks. 30%. There have been super cycles where commodities have risen 250%. There's a benchmark that they use, kind of an index. It's called the Total Return Index, and it's global commodity performance. It's up more than 70% over the last year. It's gained 46% so far in 2022. I mean, we're not even done with four months in 2022. And when you have inflation, not only, you know, we were talking about lenders, and lenders bear the brunt of inflation if interest rates that people are paying are less than the rate of inflation. The lender's dollar is being eroded. Well, you know what? So is the United States government. Think about those treasury bonds and T-bills. That's how we finance our debt. Of course, they get purchased by the Federal Reserve. How convenient. But all the investors from overseas and around the country who are invested in T-bonds and T-bills, if they're getting let's say 3% right now. It's actually about 2.7%, which is up 60% in just a month, which is an incredibly rapid move for a bond. I mean, bonds are usually like glaciers when they move. And what a bond pays in interest is called yield. And when yield goes down or yield goes up, it affects the value of the bond. To make this really simple, if you're not getting enough interest on a T-bill or a T-bond, And right now, they are 5% under the official statistics, more like (laughs) 14% under the real statistics, shadowstats.com. People aren't going to buy them if you can't or you won't buy 
bonds, United States bonds in this case, how are you going to finance the national debt? How are you going to finance all this extravagant spending? Do you see where the problem lies? If people aren't buying bonds, the Fed has to buy them or the Fed has to print money, which creates more inflation. It's a vicious circle and it doesn't end well. And the less a country's faith and credit is trusted because of the country or because of external events like inflation, the more difficult it is for that country to maintain the status of its currency. You know, there is no way in the world that a beginning student in economics in high school wouldn't know that if you print lots of dollars and buy your own debt, you're going to weaken the dollar, you're going to have inflation, and you're going to give aid, comfort, and opportunity to your economic enemies. And our economic enemies happen to be the same as our military enemies, folks, because all wars are economic. One of the things which we need to do is we need to win this upcoming election. I'm not telling you that it's going to be an overnight change if we do, but at least we will halt the flow of that water down through the grass across the slope. At least we will halt this insidious attack on our rights, including our rights to bear arms. And that's up to us. Get off the couch. I mean, I can't tell you what's at stake, not only for your country, but for you personally, your family, your kids, the children of your children. And that brings us right into part six of our ongoing How to Get Organized and Win This Election series. And today we're going to talk about how to identify and how to stop election fraud. Because election fraud or the creation of some new pandemic and some new lockdowns like you're seeing over in China, don't think that's not kind of a model. Remember, no word gets out of China that the Chinese don't want to get out of China. There's a reason for everything. But how you stop election fraud is critical to winning this election because that's all they got, folks. That's all they got. What your group needs to do, and I'm hoping your organizer are in the process of it right now, and if you haven't started, start. It's not too late. You need to divide into teams for Election Day. Hopefully some of you are already enrolled as election workers. If not, get on the stick. There are time limits on it. You can get all the information from your county clerk or the Elections Commission. It all depends what state, what location you're in. If you have enough people, work in teams. That way one can be watching the fraudulent event, one can be getting the authorities. Have your camera, have your phone, have your attorney on standby. You know, know the numbers of your party, the GOP or whatever party it is, headquarters, your attorney, and your sheriff. Look for intimidation or bribery at the polls. Even somebody passing out a sandwich to somebody else can be a bribe. Look for somebody passing out money anywhere around the polling place, buying and selling votes. Look for somebody impersonating voters. This is easier to do in a small community than a big city, but nonetheless, keep your eyes out. Be aware of people who are coming in to vote that you know or highly suspect are not registered to vote in that precinct. They've moved away, whatever. Look for people who are impersonating voters. Look for anybody who's counting votes, anybody who's playing with the machines, which all need to go, anybody anywhere in that polling place who is altering vote tallies. Watch double counting running the same ballots through the same machine more than once. Watch stuffing ballot boxes. If there are drop boxes, I feel sorry for you, but if there are drop boxes in your area, you should try and set up to monitor those. There's proven cases of 
ballot mules going to a drop box 24 times on election night in various fraudulent areas of the country in 2020 and dropping off scores, hundreds of ballots on run after run after run. Look for anybody who's marking somebody else's ballot. Make sure that no machine, I mean no machine, is plugged into the internet. There should be a power cord only, and even that I have suspect about. You may not know this, but you have, in most areas, most states, most precincts, the right to challenge any ballot, and that ballot will then get thrown into the provisional pile for later investigation, whether it's going to count or it's not going to count. Check your local laws and rules. Know what they are. Don't be afraid to contest any ballot that you think is suspect whatsoever. And one of the things you can do in advance is you can go to your election officials. You want the basic data on the elections before the election, folks. The time to do this preventative is way better than catch-up. I mean, think about 2020. You need to know how many voters are eligible to vote in each precinct in your area. On election day, or right after the count, you need to find out how many voters voted and what the vote totals were for each race. Remember, I brought you that story two weeks ago. 752,000 more ballots cast in Pennsylvania than there were voters. Oh, really? Really? This is up to us. There's only one way they can win this election. Actually, two ways. The first is you don't get off the couch. I mean, get off the couch. And you don't register and you don't vote and you don't get organized. And you don't participate in the election at the polling place. The second is election fraud. And you know it exists. Think about two years ago. So it's time to stand up and get her done. All right, let's go into, and by the way, this is on the Take Action page. This outline, part six, is on the Take Action page www.ontherightsideradio. The button is right on the homepage. Visit it. There's also two great articles kind of give you some background on election fraud under election fraud on the homepage. Okay, let's get into rat-a-tat-tat. How's that? Rat-a-tat-tat. Okay, I got a great one for you. I mean, we, we have to lead off with this one. So did you know how your your money is being spent? I mean, besides all the crazy stuff. Guess what? FEMA announced on March 15, 2022, that they're going to provide $2 billion in COVID-19 funeral assistance to up to 300,000 applicants. And they're going to have like a big marketing campaign using your tax money, of course. Folks can get up to $9,000 for COVID funeral expenses, although the average claim they're paying out right now is $6,500. And they're going to host media roundtables. They're going to particularly focus on African-American, Hispanic, Latino, and Asian-American Pacific Islander communities, I quote. And they're going to encourage local press to spread the word. In fact, they're going to offer their pamphlets in 76 different languages. Just think about, folks, if they had spent that kind of money on informing people about natural immunity, preventative vitamins and supplements, and therapeutics that have been proven around the world and are used around the world and work. You know, HCQ plus the Z-Pack, Ivermectin, you know. But we're going to spend money on funerals instead. Gee, what possibly could be the motive for that? Next, you know, the Democrats will stop at nothing to stay in power and win elections. So instead of working to present electable candidates... 
gee, with good policies? What a novel idea. Democrats in Wisconsin sued three elected Republicans and asked the court to remove them from the ballot. You know, Senator Ron Johnson and GOP representatives Tom Tiffany and Scott Fitzgerald. They said they had kind of supported the January 6th insurrection. That was beat down. That lawsuit has been tossed. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I happen to think is terrific, is now being sued. Same reason, different state, same day, same BS. So that's how far the Democratic Marxists will go to win elections. Along that election line, so two cybersecurity experts, I mean, like over 80 years of experience, have reviewed all the election data from Mesa County, Colorado. Do you remember this is the county clerk that's being indicted by by the Secretary of State of Colorado? The Secretary of State told her to destroy all the ballot information from the machines, but it was ahead of the legal schedule. The clerk stood up. She made copies of it. The copies have now been forensically examined. And guess what? There was a creation of multiple databases in Mesa County. Yes, totally illegal. And the existence of those additional databases and the movement, and they have it all set down in black and white, of ballot records between them not only broke the chain of evidence that's required by law, but it altered the outcome of the 2020 election. I can't believe it. We're out of time again. Cass Sunstein, Obama's regulatory czar, oh boy, he wrote a book called Nudge. It's talking about how progressives need to attack on many fronts and slowly move things along to reach transformation and then spring the trap. It's too late. Exactly what you see happening with the destruction of the dollar. Exactly what you see happening with the assault on Second Amendment rights since 1934 and ongoing. We're going to talk about that next week. And more on gun control, stuff that you don't know that's looming under the surface. They will stop at nothing to get done what they want to get done, folks. And we're going to have some more economic, in-depth probes for you next week, which I think will help you and your family, and will help you and your family help your country. And a whole bunch more, too. Thanks for listening. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Lots coming at you next week. Remember, repeat after me. Look in the mirror with conviction, with your family, I will muster, I will stand, I will not comply, I will never give in, I will never stop fighting, I will join with those in these United States and across the globe who love freedom as I do, and we will win. Please remember, if you've missed any shows, just click on Show Archive and you'll find all of his shows. We look forward to seeing you here again next week for another episode of Reed Lance Rosenthal on the right side.